This is episode 5 of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. Welcome to the Inner Game of Aging podcast, helping you to discover how to be older without growing old. And here's your host, turning this whole idea of aging upside down, Lee Mowat. Hello and Welcome to Episode 5 of the Inner Game of Aging Podcast. This podcast is all about giving dignity and purpose to our aging process and our older citizens. And as I increase the number of discussions I have with senior centers, adult service departments, and others that tend to our elder citizens, one of the things I keep hearing about is elder abuse. Now, this is an uncomfortable topic for most of us, but I've become convinced through these discussions that we need to educate ourselves in this area. Why? Our changing demographics will expose higher number of potential victims to those that may not have their best interest at heart. I was very lucky to stumble on a true authority in this area, Mr. Paul Greenwood. He has been heavily involved in elder abuse cases for over 20 years as a prosecutor in San Diego. His bio, which you will find in the show notes, is truly um, impressive, and I am so happy to have him as our guest today. Now, I know what this sounds like to you. You might think you're about to hear a discussion about law and a whole bunch of criminal cases. But the discussion you're about to hear is truly different than what you would expect. Starting with Paul's noticeable British accent, which I'm sure he cultivates just to keep us all off guard and amused, to his history and intense passion for this topic, I'm sure you will not walk away unchanged by this discussion. And stick around for the end where you will hear how to get even more information on all of this. been in this area for so long, Paul. Yes. Uh, help my listeners understand who you are. Sure. Okay. Well, um, my name is Paul Greenwood. And as you uh, can tell from the way I'm speaking already, I'm not exactly a classic Southern California dude. <laughs> uh, I live and work in uh, San Diego, California. I am a prosecutor. And I've been a prosecutor with this office for 23 years. Okay. I'm actually, I, I will disclose, I am 64 years of age, uh, so I've been around a little bit. Okay, so you've been practicing in San Diego for that long, and has it always been centered around elder abuse? Well, no, it hasn't. Uh, f- so when I first joined the district attorney's office in uh, 1993, I was like every other prosecutor just doing my regular uh, DUIs, um, uh, low-level robberies, and a few other things. <laughs> and uh, three years after that, uh, I was called into the boss's office, and this is how it went, Lee. I, I was said, uh, told, okay, Greenwood, we've heard from Adult Protective Services that uh, we are ignoring a growing problem called elder abuse. So we have decided that you are going to be the prosecutor <laughs> elder abuse and go prosecute it. And at that time, I had no knowledge of what that was about. 
And uh, typically in our office, Lee, we uh, send a prosecutor to prosecute a particular type of crime for no more than three to five years. And then we rotate them. Ah. In my case, I've been prosecuting elder abuse for 20 years with the simple reason that I discovered an area that I became very passionate about, very incensed, angered about, frustrated about, challenged. And it has absorbed my career, and I don't want to do anything else. This is fascinating to me. The element that's fascinating is the extent of your passion. Uh, For those of you who may not know, Paul has some videos on YouTube. I would encourage, I'll put evidences of these in my show notes, but I would encourage you to see these videos because they, you can easily see the passion that Paul has for this topic area. Well, why don't we start off by describing, which is a hard definition I can understand, describing elder abuse. Introduce me to elder abuse, if you can. And I have to do it from the perspective of California, but I'll explain in a a broader sense what I mean by it. So in, in California, we define, first of all, an elder as anybody over the age of 65 years of age. So the criteria that I am given and I use is if there is a victim over the age of 65 who becomes a victim of some form of abuse, then I get to prosecute the perpetrator. Now, what do we define by abuse? It covers, uh, obviously, the, the, what we normally think of as physical abuse, slapping, pushing, hitting, which can lead sometimes to very serious injuries. Um, mm. And then there's another category called physical neglect. In that category, I have to prove that the suspect was already in a position of care, a caregiver Mm. to the uh, alleged victim. So the neglect will cover withholding medications, uh, failing to take the person to receive medical treatment, allowing them to develop dehydration, malnutrition, uh, bed sores, things like that. Now, so, so those are the two categories, subcategories. And then I'll just give you two or three more. Please. And the next one is emotional abuse or mental abuse, which can be very much more difficult to define. I can easily show a photo of a black eye, but it's more difficult to transfer to a jury the sense of how mental abuse occurred. Mm. That's definitely a crime. The fourth type is what we call financial uh, exploitation. And uh, for stealing from an elder, Uh, Anything over $950 is a a felony in California. Under $950 is a a misdemeanor. And then there's obviously, sadly, there's all forms of sexual abuse. um, And and that's pretty much what I uh, cover is those types of uh, subcategories. Okay. Now, you've mentioned um, the laws of California. You referred to them several times in what you just said. Is what is the uniformity of um, of the laws touching elder abuse from state to state to state? And that's the frustration, Lee, because unfortunately there is no uniform definition. And this is something that I've been trying to get the feds to look at. I think we should, um, if we're going to make some inroads into this escalating problem of elder abuse, we need to define what our terms are. But there are a lot of states who don't use elder abuse as their definition. They use what we call vulnerable adult abuse. Mm -hmm. And the trouble is with that definition of vulnerable adult 
it can be somebody aged from 18 up to 100. Uh-huh. And it's it's too wide a definition. And the other thing is, I don't like the definition of vulnerability because I don't want to, in one sense, belittle my uh, victims and 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 determine that they are quote vulnerable. Yes. Age based definitions, I think, are a lot easier not only to prove but to also to present to a jury. Okay. So the variations that we see from state to state can sort of thwart the effort to bring this all under control the they don't have uniform we don't have uniform definitions throughout the country to look at this thing through we don't and and that that gives rise to uh, what is often a complaint where is the data to prove that this is an escalating crime and that's the problem there is very little data out there because a lot of prosecutors refuse to prosecute under the vulnerable adult abuse statute because it's too difficult to prove. Mm-hmm. So they they then prosecute under another code section, which doesn't then reflect that this was a case of elder or vulnerable adult abuse. So they don't collect that data. Correct. So, okay. Now, I can imagine the frustration that that must cause you as a lawyer. Yeah. Um, do you practice outside of California? No, I don't. Okay, um, okay. I mean, but, I have a license back in England. Um, yeah. <laughs> kind of dormant. Um, okay. But I do have the opportunity to visit other states uh, to to do trainings. I get very um, uh, encouraged by going to various states. Because uh, I, 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 I take back to San Diego things that I've learned from being mm-hmm. in those states. Okay. Uh, and they all have different things that uh, I think we can apply here. And I think... Uh, I don't have that many gifts, but one of the gifts I think I've been blessed with is motivating people. Motivating people. And and making them believe that these cases and sad incidents of elder abuse can be converted into real good investigations and then real good prosecutions. Excellent. So, you know, um, another question just popped into my mind. This may be off to the side, but... Uh, is elder abuse cases always criminal, or can they be civil? Or yeah, help me understand that. Yeah, good point. No, they can be both criminal and civil. And there are sometimes, uh, Lee, when I am prosecuting criminally, and there is at the same time ongoing a civil litigation lawsuit. But mm-hmm. here's also one of the frustrations when uh, a witness or a victim tries to make a complaint to the police that this person has been ripped off. They've been stolen from Mm -hmm. the police attitude can often be ah that's a civil matter go get a lawyer so there are many times that i'm trying to actually uh get information where it's already been filed as a civil lawsuit but Mm -hmm. whatever reason law enforcement has not recognized that it is also criminal so it's not just it almost seems like a cultural issue here where law enforcement needs to be educated the you know the legal system needs to be educated and the you know the population at large needs to be educated to see signs and to report and things of that sort it is this is a movement so to speak in that as our demographic is is aging we will see more of this and we need to be aware of what we would find and be able to spot these cases. What what are the signs of elder abuse? Well, you've hit upon some very interesting uh, things there. Exactly, and I do describe it now as a movement, Lee. Because really, 20, twenty years ago when I started, uh, when the first question I, I said was, "Well, where's the manual?" 
<laughs> You'll have to write it, Green. Um, very few resources that I could turn to uh, to help me. Uh, but I've noticed in the last particularly three or four years, the movement is growing. But um, one of the things we have to uh, educate people about is what are the warning signs? How do I uh, anticipate or how can I know if elder abuse is ongoing? And one of the biggest red flags, Lee, is what we call isolation. A perpetrator moves in and targets an elderly person who is presumably living on their own. Their mm -hmm. relatives may have already predeceased or may be living 100 miles away or more in mm -hmm. another state. That predator will go and do everything they can to isolate the, the potential victim from their neighbors from their faith-based organization, from their social group, from their hairdresser. And so that's why we try to make it a big training for what I call mandatory reporters, such as bank tellers, such as the mail carrier, such as Meals on Wheels. Mm -hmm. When they see uh, a, a difference in this uh, behavior where relatives are being blocked from speaking to the elderly person or from visiting them, that should immediately trigger sure. a call to the local adult protective services. I want to get back to something you just said. You were describing, as you were talking about the sign of isolation, you were describing the perpetrator as if they were doing this in a criminal manner, in a, in a deliberate manner. Could such isolation you know, encouraged by one person to an elder, could that almost happen as a matter of circumstance, by accident? Or, you know, for example, um, if if someone has called on, if an elder has called on someone for help, just a random basis, and they become friends, the person, the elder person has already been isolated. This person comes on the scene to help, and now this person can... Do you ever get cases where the quote-unquote perpetrator can really be innocent, didn't mean to do what he has accidentally done. Um, does yes. cases like this come up? Yes, they do, Lee. And that's why it's good to have checks and balances. And that's why, for example, uh, when somebody calls me with a concern uh, about a neighbor who they think is being isolated and there's this new friend who is apparently mm. helping out, my first responsibility is to make a referral to adult protective services and not to have the police show up because that could be the wrong, the wrong method. Uh, this yes. person, as you say, may have every good intent in the world uh, and may be doing it very innocently. But uh, APS, adult protective services, are trained as social workers to look for some other telltale signs yep. that may confirm some suspicions that, in fact, this person doesn't have the elderly person's best interest at heart. So if that happens, then they will make a cross-report to law enforcement. And if law enforcement has been properly trained, they'll do further investigation. And mm -hmm. if they see and find evidence that points to crime, then they will then bring it to my office. And True. then there's another layer, you see, because then I can then check the evidence and I have to have, make sure there's evidence beyond a reasonable doubt before I ever deprive a suspect of their liberty. That's so right. <laughs> it's, it's a multi-layer thing. We don't, you know, send in law enforcement with all guns blazing, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of isolation. 
so you know, and that's what. So we- there's a reasonable investigation yes. for what's going on here. Now, in your experience, what sort of how many cases come out um, innocent, so to speak? Yeah, not by the time it gets to you, it's usually not innocent. I can understand right. that, right. but at the level of adult protective services, how many? Turn out innocent. How many doesn't don't go further than that? And how many go on? Right, I would say a good fifty percent of referrals to uh, adult protective services get closed out pretty quickly without ah. without any referral to law enforcement. Okay. Now that doesn't mean to say that the fifty percent cases that are closed out it was a waste of time. No, because I'm always encouraging people go with your gut feeling. No mm-hmm. one's ever going to uh, criticize you for making that call. And for the vast majority of the public, they are, they're not under a duty anyway to make a report. They can do it anonymously. Mm. And I said, let the professionals determine whether or not there is something deeper here that's going on. Okay. Okay. Um, and sometimes all they need, uh, the elderly person needs, is uh, to be connected to some social services agency that they didn't realize existed. Exactly. So it's it's just that I I don't want to scare people away from assisting our older folks, but as long as they have their best interests in mind, but we realize the dangers that that brings on. If everyone's helping olders, a few of those people don't have the older's best interest in mind and we recognize this, you know, and we have to protect ourselves from this. There's a balance to be struck, you know. Absolutely. And you know, I remember it's interesting you should tell me that, Lee, because I remember the first neglect case I ever prosecuted in front of a jury where I prosecuted the caregiver. The judge, after the verdict was taken, and it was a guilty verdict, but the judge took me to one side and, and he just very gently said, Paul, uh, be real careful which cases you choose to prosecute on neglect. Because he says, what we don't want to do is send the wrong message to the community. We want the community to be responsive. We want them to to do the right thing and look out for an elder who is in need exactly. of help. Mm-hmm. And we don't want the public to be in fear of uh, helping an elder because they think that this radical Greenwood is out there <laughs> snooping around saying, uh uh-huh, you've been in that person's home you have no intentions i'm going to come after you yeah so i'm glad you raised that point lee we encourage people to watch out for their elderly neighbors and friends okay to get involved in their lives but at the same time to be aware that there are unfortunately people in our society who are out there right now looking for potential victims absolutely absolutely so um you're taking this from the perspective of a lawyer, but as a regular citizen, how might I spot as I live my life engaging the people that I do, older, younger, how might I spot elder abuse? How might I begin to suspect that something is going on there that needs further investigation? Great question. Uh, a couple, some things here. Number one, sometimes a change in the elderly person's physical appearance. If you haven't seen them for a few weeks and suddenly you see them, they've lost weight, they look a bit bedraggled, they look a little more confused, maybe they have uh, some evidence of bruising on them. Mm -hmm. And when you ask questions, they deflect from that and, and try to change the subject. That in itself could be a red flag. Another one would be, I've had this many times, where the elder comes to you and says, can I borrow $100 to pay my utility bill this month? And you find out that the reason is, is because they have just 
um, sc- been scammed out of $25,000 by wow. a scammer. And they're literally down to their last 10 or $15 and can't pay this month's commitments. Well, wow. that's another red flag. And another one is where they are gushing about this new friend that they have just met. Oh, you should meet this friend of mine. Oh, he's so wonderful. He keeps coming over every day. And who is this friend? Oh, he's he's the cab driver. He picked me up uh, and he's he's doing this all now free of charge. He's wonderful. You know, that could well be a huge red flag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So, you know, now these are examples where people are sort of Moving into an elder's life, trying to gain confidence for nefarious purposes. And so, but there are other ways of doing this. Some of the financial abuse scams I'm hearing about can be quite ingenious as, you know, I'm, I've heard a few. Can you, can you tell us a few of these financial um, abuse scams that are more interesting? Sure. They're, They're pretty much variations on the same theme. Uh, the most popular right now where I'm getting lots of calls Number one, the grandma scam, which is where the perpetrator either pretends on the phone to be the actual grandson who is now in jail in Peru (laughs) and he needs help to get out. And it's grandma that can come to the rescue. And by the way, don't tell mom and dad because they'll tell my employer and I'll lose my job. Or it will be the perpetrator will be an attorney masquerading as the attorney for the grandson who's in the jail. And he needs $5,000 up front to pay for his legal costs and his bail money. So that's number one on the list. Number two on the list is IRS scam. So the caller gets uh, the the victim gets a call from, quote, quote, the IRS saying uh, it's tax season. uh, You're in arrears. uh, We're going to arrest you in the next 24 hours unless you pay up the arrears. It's amazing, amazingly, how many people fall for that. Uh, or the mm. utility scam, where the the caller says, "I'm from your utility company. We're going to shut you off uh, if you don't pay up in the next five hours." Wow, five hours! <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, and, and they give them instructions on how to send money. It's typically through an iTunes card, would you believe? Wow, or a green dot. It's called green dot prepaid debit card, which you can get mm-hmm. at any supermarket, and um, that's how they do it. Um, Interesting. And then, of course, the age-old scam is the congratulations, you've won a million dollars, but you need to pay uh, $20,000 taxes before we send you the money. That's right. <laughs> and so, okay, so these are the, just a, a few of the financial scams mm-hmm. that we um, that we can hear about. But getting back to the physical abuse or the neglect abuse, that's usually – Done by a relative or caregiver, as I understand. Absolutely, it is. And the typical profile of the physical abuser, Lee, is a son. And uh, he's aged between 35 and 55. We prosecute this type of case every week. Really? Oh, yeah. And it's a widowed mother. The son lives at home with his mother, and he's one of three types of sons. He's either single, and he's never, ever left home. And the reason is, is (laughs) his mother, unfortunately, is his enabler. And Mm -hmm. in every single case, he's lazy. And whenever I talk to his mother, I say, "Uh, ma'am, your son is 46, and I notice that he's unemployed. How come? And she says, well, Mr. Greenwood, he tells me he has a medical condition. I say, let me guess. He's got a bad back. And she said, how did you know? I say, come on, sit on your sofa eight hours a day watching your television. Unfortunately... 
<laughs> you have hit you have hit a story that is so close to my heart. I knew a couple two years ago who had a son living at home with a bad back and wasn't employed. Within six months after I learned of the situation, unfortunately, they were murdered by the son. Oh, my gosh. You see, and that's, yes. that's exactly what will happen, unfortunately, in some cases, if we don't intervene at the earliest opportunity. And, and this son typically has an addiction. It's either drugs, typically methamphetamine, or alcohol, mm -hmm. vodka, and or beer, and thirdly, mm -hmm. gambling. And when you have an unemployed son living at home, and he, what he does to feed his addiction, he steals his mother's jewelry, typically. When she finds out that he has pawned her jewelry, she confronts him, and that's when the argument follows, and that's when um, serious injuries this, occur. This is, we were all very devastated by this incident, which happened about a year and a half, two years ago, and it fit exactly the profile you were talking about. So, so I feel for this situation. Yeah. These were fairly close friends of mine. And, so, and it's tragic. And and, and you, when you look at that kind of desperate situation, there probably were indicators prior to the absolutely. arson. And here's here's the challenge, Lee: is um, these victims, the parents, they don't want you and I to know that they have raised a son who does this to their, his own parents. Right, Paul. They're so uh, yes. um, sometimes they're fearful of retaliation, and so that's we all sense this. We all of our friends in that particular circle had sensed that something was amiss, and we didn't know enough to say anything. And when this news came down, we were also devastated. You know, so and we all sort of justified our gut in this case. It's important to follow your gut. It absolutely you know, so. is. And 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 Lee, there's, a, there's another component with a lot of these sons, which is no fault of the sons. Many of these sons have an untreated or undiagnosed mental illness, bipolar, mm -hmm. schizophrenia, and, mm -hmm. and one of the biggest problems in our society today is we have not devoted enough resources to treating the mentally ill. And, yes. and we are very, very concerned about this in San Diego because um, I was just talking to one of my colleagues today. 75% of all my colleagues' cases of elder abuse involving sons uh, involve some form of mental illness. This is, this is impressive. I don't know what's... Why, why is elder abuse rising? I know our demographics are aging, but elder abuse requires a perpetrator and a victim... You know, there seems to be perpetrators seem to be coming up out of the woodwork or something like that, from what I can tell. Well, you know what? What's changing? Again, Lee, by the way, you ask great questions. Um, <laughs> Thank and, you. Um, the, the, it's like if you and I were transported back in time 50 years ago, right? And you and I were mm. having this discussion about domestic violence. You would have said exactly the same thing 50 years ago about domestic violence. Oh, oh, yes, we're right. a little more about this. And the reason is why we're now hearing more about elder abuse is because we've learned the lessons from domestic violence. That it's not just a family private matter. This is a crime that it needs to be addressed uh, early and aggressively because if we don't, it's going to end up just like with this situation you shared with me, a yes. homicide. So I think what's happening is that more and more law enforcement prosecutors, they're getting trained. They're becoming more aware. The public is becoming more aware because when I started 20 years ago, 
nobody had ever talked about the term elder abuse. But when I, when I go now and travel and I bump into people and they say, what do you do for a living? And I say, well, I prosecute elder abuse. Everyone's heard of the term. And mm. it's just become more of an acceptable phrase now. So I think people are more in tune with the fact that it is going on. Well, you started the movement. Well, I don't know about that, <laughs> but I, I certainly have encouraged <laughs> others to sign up for <laughs> So now, again, public awareness of these issues is key to resolving them, prosecuting them, you know, and mitigating them. How do we publicize? How do we make the public aware that this is an issue that we all need to be alerted to? How does that happen? It, it happens grassroots level. Um, in San Diego, for example, uh, several of us go out and about into the community and we uh, speak at various uh, events. Just last Friday mm -hmm. afternoon, I was at a big retirement community center um, speaking to about 100 elderly uh, residents on how to avoid becoming the victim of some kind of financial exploitation. Um, I work closely with Adult Protective Services. I work with local sheriffs, local police. Uh, they do their own uh, literature. Mm -hmm. We've developed uh, brochures. Uh, we, mm -hmm. uh, we encourage uh, uh, other folks like banks and credit unions to do their own trainings, to do their own outreach, Meals on Wheels, people like that. Anyone, anyone okay. who has access to older adults, we've encouraged them to generate materials to get the word out, public service announcements and things like that. And now this is interesting because there's, there's another side of this, and not another side to elder abuse, but another side to being an elder. One of the messages of GrowthWorks is to try and empower the older people to understand that getting older and getting old are two different things. So part of my message is to, you know, to have us understand that there's something that turns better as we get older. But elder abuse tends to frame the older people as frail and, you know, you know neglectful, forgetful. You know, this is not necessarily the way I like to see older pe people pictured. But the victims of elder abuse typically fall into this kind of category. You know, as opposed to you're 64, I'm 66, you know, you know, you and I may not be characteristically victims of this, but as we get older, we get more frail. Are we, you know, vulnerable to becoming victims ourselves because of our frailty? I like to see powerful older people, you know, focusing on elder abuse, which is necessary, don't get me wrong. I'm trying to find a balance between the power of getting older versus the vulnerability of getting yes. older. What sort of balance yes. is that, and how do I strike that balance? That's, that's so true, and I and I'm often very careful uh, to to try to reinforce that for seniors. When I go and speak to a group of older adults, uh, I always number one, the last thing we should be doing is almost making fun of being older, and right. um, to uh, give them the materials to give them the information that will help them not become victims a positive message and, and the other thing is i always try to tell law enforcement one of the reasons why they weren't bringing me any cases was because they felt that because my victims were over say 70 that they would therefore be ineffective as witnesses in the courtroom and i kept telling them you're absolutely wrong uh, i would rather be in a courtroom with an 85-year-old witness than a 21-year-old 
male from Pacific Beach, whose every other <laughs> word is dude, and who can remember what he had for breakfast the day before because of what he smashed That's out right. of the brain. Um, because I find that when you deal with an 85-year-old on the witness stand, you've got somebody who's lived, lived a life, who's got common sense, who typically hasn't got a criminal record anyway, like my 21-year-old male from Pacific Beach does. They, they are credible. And so uh, I, I like to pre present my witnesses as people who are very respected, distinguished, who, ha who should be proud of their life's achievements. You know, I interviewed a, for the, this podcast series, I interviewed a 90-year-old uh, a couple weeks ago. This man was incredible uh, for being, I mean, he, he defied all of my images of what a 90-year-old is, you know, and I learned so much from him. You know, this is the way I like to see our elders disseminating wisdom, understanding their life better, and helping others to understand their life. They've lived it. They've, they have that wisdom. And this is the way I like to typically portray um, elders, you know, but when we fall for scams, we are often embarrassed by this, yep. and we can tend to hide our own vulnerability. Yes. Um, and we when we find ourselves needing the assistance of others, again, that sort of diminishes our own confidence, and we find ourselves dependent, which makes us more vulnerable to, you know, to this sort of approach from exactly. others. Exactly. I mean, it's human nature, isn't it? Uh, we yes. We all have yes. pride, and, and, and mm -hmm. so it's for me, the challenge has been for the last 20 years, uh, trying to get through that barrier of embarrassment, try to reassure my victim that no one in my office is ever going to ridicule them having mm -hmm. made a decision that ends up in them being scammed. That I reinforce the fact that these scammers are very good, that they can hoodwink anybody regardless of their age. They don't have to be 90 to become a victim. They could be 25 years of age. And mm -hmm. I, also, I, I think one of the things that's helped me, uh, Lee, is uh, when I left law school uh, in England, uh, there's, there's one thing I learned. I didn't want to be a lawyer, that's for sure. <laughs> so I, I, went, <laughs> I lived in uh, Kenya for two years uh, ah. with the Peace Corps. I was a teacher in a little village. And for two years, I lived in a culture where the elders were not only respected, but they were the people that everybody went to for advice and That's you know right. we, we you and i know that we don't go our society never goes to people who are 80 or 90 for advice unless we want to find out what the secret of a long living is then we do yeah. right we, we want to be there one day but i wish more and more we could go to people in their in their 80s and 90s and say look you've lived through you've lived through a world war you've lived through um bad times good absolutely times. Tell me, what do you think the, the fix is here, you know? Well, I mean, you've hit upon what I'm doing um, quite accurately. I have instituted a Wisdom from Elders program where I interviewing this 90-year-old person was part of that program to extract the wisdom of elders and to sort of disseminate it out. You know, there's so much value that our society can use to become a more human society that it resides in our elders. And I need to tap into that and start to disseminate that. That's how I ended up speaking to the 90-year-old. 90, 90 so, Paul, I'm right and with this you. Ni you know, this 90-year-old, what was their career in? 
He was, he had several careers, um, and he was still working, by the way. He's, right now, he's doing flooring. He's a partner in a flooring company. Now, you know, he gave me his card, and this is a 90-year-old man. He gave me his card. You need flooring? Call this number. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I, I was fascinated by the whole thing. He and I have since become friends. Can you tell me what the profile, we know the profile of uh, an abusing yes. son. What is the, What are some of the profiles that you look for? Right. Well, and and the the problem is with financial abuse. There is no such mm. equivalent profile because the predators out there, and I do that's what I call them. They they can mm -hmm. range from a realtor, an attorney, mm. a member of the clergy, your next mm -hmm. door neighbor, your transient person in the street. Uh, your door-to-door sa -door salesman. I mean, they come in all shapes and sizes and all backgrounds, okay. and you really can't really define the profile of uh, who's going to be ripping off. Um, and so okay. that's why I make a big thing uh, to not only the elders, but I try to reach the adult sons and daughters of older people because I do find that the majority of my victims – the uh, adult children have failed to carry out their responsibilities of staying in, in regular touch. And I'll just make it very personal for one minute. Uh, my mother is 92, and my father died from advanced Alzheimer's eight, 15 months ago. And my mother mm. lives alone. And ever since uh, my father went into a nursing home before he died, I made a commitment to my mother, and she lives in England, 6,000 miles away. I made a commitment that I would phone her every single day. Day. And about 18 wow. months ago, three months before my dad died, I actually purchased her a mini iPad. And so now I FaceTime or Skype with her every single morning before I go to work. Just like you and I are having this fabulous conversation, eye to eye, mm. verbally, um, 3,000 miles apart. I have the same uh, experience every single morning with my mother. I get to see her physically. And there are Great. so many times, Lee, that I get a call from an adult son or daughter angry that they've just discovered that their elderly mother has been ripped off. And so mm. I let them go on and then I interrupt and I say, when was the last time you visited your mother? And now they give me every excuse under the sun why they were not able to get to their mother. Oh, I'm so busy. I have kids. I can't get there. You know, and, yep. and I'm sorry, but that doesn't cut it with me. Yes, I can understand why. The technology these days takes all those excuses sure away. sure does. And communication is just so wonderful to be able to stay in touch with an aging parent. And I think if more of us did that, uh, we could see crime amongst this population being reduced dramatically. Now, um, how about the profile of a victim? What's the typical profile of a victim that you find? Very good. Life? Well, sadly, the, uh, many of my, uh, most of my victims, I would say, well, 70% of my victims are female, uh, mm -hmm. aged probably 75 to 90. And mm -hmm. many of them live alone, still in their own homes, mm -hmm. and they uh, are very lonely. And mm. their own children have either fallen out with them or they live too far away to have regular contact with them. That's my profile of my typical victim. Interesting. I'm going to I, – I, I fell in love with the idea, Paul, that you just mentioned. 
I'm going to encourage every listener that's appropriate to give their parents um, an iPad or a tablet of some sort and to just tap them on a regular basis through this technology, you know, chat with them, talk with them, let them feel your presence and you feel their presence. That sounds like a wonderful idea and a wonderful way to use technology that's all around us at this point in time. And I tell you what, if that uh, elderly person has a uh, caregiver that comes in every day and that caregiver knows that the adult son or daughter is on a regular contact visually, Mm -hmm. that in itself I think would diminish the risk of that caregiver stealing the jewelry. That's... I, I think that's right now I'm seeing that's one of the best ideas in this conversation. <laughs> so for that people themselves can do. You as an attorney, of course, have play a different role, but us as, you know, walking around the population and taking care of our parents and you know I think that's you know, using this technology to to take care of our parents is an excellent, excellent yeah. idea. I've seen it done elsewhere, but I'm impressed that you speak to your every mother single every day. single day. And it's always, and I have to tell you, it's at 6.59 in the morning. And I'll tell you why, because if it gets to 7.01, it's my mother FaceTiming me. And she's like, oh, right, what's happened? Has there been an earthquake? Yeah. <laughs> You have to be punctual to every, everything. And if you're not, you, you give an explanation yeah. as to why you're late. Well, I would I would play tricks on my mother. She would. Uh, my mother's no longer with me, but she would call me and ask me, how am I doing? I said, oh, it looks like it's all going to be fine. <laughs> what do you mean it's all going to be fine? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it, was, it just, I mean, you know, the finger's going to heal. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. What do you mean the finger's going to heal? Well, I broke the finger while I was trying to rescue the horses. Rescue the horses? Why are you rescuing the horses? Well, we had a fire in the house. <laughs> Eventually, oh. she would... Catch on and says, "Why do you do that to me?" <laughs> so, I I could have been a better son. <laughs> so, but she would have some laughs on that. Yeah, so, okay. So, so the the profile of the victim seventy five to ninety, lonely, living alone. Um, you know, to the victims for financial abuse, you have to have some money around you. For financial abuse, how do the, how do the perpetrators know that you have money around yeah. you? Well, they, they um, sometimes, uh, if, if for example, if it's a caregiver, they they see the they see the uh. checkbook laying around. They'll see the um, credit card, and they will um, either actually steal the credit card or just take note of the number and start start mm. using it, and then uh, conveniently misplace um, the credit card statements uh, when it arrives at the house. Because, again, a lot of people um, can't get physically walk out of their house to pick up from the mailbox. So it's, ah. it's left to the caregiver mm-hmm. to go do that. And so it's, it's, it's okay. built in for the, for the caregiver to be able to get away with the crime for several months and, and conceal their, their thefts. Um, then there's a lot of other predators who are just literally out there are looking for victims at the supermarket, in the parking lot, walking walking into the store. Uh, We've had several of those uh, cases. And then a a lot of elders like to amuse themselves by going to the casino. A lot of my predators are just hanging out at the casino looking for elderly people at the slot machines. And so it goes on. Interesting. Now, another question that's curious to me, you had touched upon this in the previous statement you made, Paul. 
But when you bring seniors into the legal system, you say most of these have never been exposed to the legal system in this manner before. What do you find when you bring an elder into the legal system like this on in court, on the witness stand? Do you find what's what sort of patterns do you see there as they're trying to, for example, recounting, you know, just taking back a charge, you know, just I don't want to charge my son or whatever the caregiver is. And, you know, do you find a lot of that? Uh, yeah, yeah, just I don't want to. I don't want to go through with this. Right. Yeah, we, we we do get a lot of that, and, and and a lot of it comes still in the investigation stage. So a part of my training for police is, um, look, I, you must never give in to the victim's wishes. Just because the victim says I don't want anything to happen to my son, no, you bring me the case and let me work through the victim's um, hesitation. And this is what I do, Lee. I'll say to the victim, okay, tell me about your son's problems. Does he have an addiction? Does he have a mental illness? Okay, the addiction. Have you tried getting your son help? Yes, I have. Has it worked? No. I say, well, look, I know a wonderful program where it's not going to cost you any money and there's going to be uh, consequences for your son if he doesn't follow through. Do you like the idea of that program? She says, oh, that sounds great. What is it? I said, it's called prosecution. (laughs) And... (laughs) <laughs> and, and they, they, they get it you know i think uh, lee i need to sometimes strip away the misconceptions that there are and a, a lot mm. of these victims have already had a phone call from jail from their son oh mom you got to tell the da that you're going to drop the charges because the da wants me to go to prison for 25 years to life and I'll often say to the victim, has your son called you? What did he tell you about me? What did he say I was going to do to him? And then I'll say, you know what? He's just trying it on with you because I'm not after 25 years. I want your son to get rid of his addiction. Does that sound good to you? She says, oh, yes. I said, okay, well, let's work together on trying to make that happen. So I think it just takes a little bit of time and 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 stripping away these misconceptions uh, to get the cooperation. it's obvious you've been at this for a while. Your approach is, as far as I'm hearing, Paul, is is excellent. You know, if I were, you know, if I had a son at home who needed help, uh, you know, you've just convinced me. Well, <laughs> so. it, it works most of the time, Lee. It doesn't always work, I must tell you. <laughs> uh, but when, in the times when it doesn't work, I'll still press ahead and still go for the conviction because I, I know that ultimately that is the right decision to make on behalf of the people of San Diego. Okay. Now, another issue just came up in my mind as you're talking, Paul. Um, there is what we call the right to folly. Um, and by that, I mean we all have a right to make mistakes in our life, and we shouldn't be stopped from doing that, and the law shouldn't stop us from making the mistakes in our life. This is bucking up against some of the things that we are talking about here. How do you handle that? You know, if someone <laughs> – this is yep. this is a tough call. This is a tough call. Talk Lee, to me about you, that. Again, great, great question. And And – that is the the fine line where I have to make decisions. Was this person fully aware of the decision that they entered into? Um, now, they, they, there's another aspect to that too. What did they get in return for this decision? Did they get something uh, which mm-hmm. represents the value? 
if it's got no value at all, then that's still a crime, even though they went into it with their eyes open. Uh, for example, sure. uh, an elderly person hires an unlicensed contractor to do the building work on their house. The person knows that they are unqualified, but they found him through the penny saver. He's cheaper than everyone else. So they're entering into it knowing the risk. But at the same mm-hmm. time, this guy comes in and rips off the elder. That is still a crime, even though they were foolish to, to go with that person. But yes. then there's the other situation where the maybe somebody um, uh, is befriended by a person of the opposite sex, and they go into it with both eyes open. And yes. they foolishly marry this person, and they draw up a prenuptial agreement and, and whatever. Well, you know, sometimes we have to say, you know what? This is what you deserve at the end of it. You were, you were a little yeah. foolish in doing it. So, But when it gets to a certain age, 75, 80 years of age, I look very closely, Lee, at any cognitive impairments that actually mm. impacted mm. the rational decision-making that you and I might, of course. might have. I would imagine that would come into it, especially the with the older with the older the people yes. are. And so now, um, now what about in nursing homes? You know, there's another issue that I don't think we've touched upon. Uh, you may not be as familiar with because you are attaching this attaching to this from the legal side, but the elder abuse in nursing homes is also a problem. Do you ever get anything that associates itself with the elder abuse in nursing yes, homes? And- it's only happened in the last two years. And I'll tell you how it happened, Lee. Oh. Uh, our local newspaper did a series of hard-hitting articles on the fact that too many crimes are occurring in nursing homes and they're not being investigated and prosecuted. So our local commissioners um, called me in with my boss and they said, are you aware of this? And I said, well, yes, I am. And I've, it's frustrated me because we haven't been able to have the resources to get into these facilities. And they said, well, what would, what would it take? I said, give us some money. And so they did. <laughs> they found a they found million dollars. And as a result, we hired three more investigators. And we've now mm-hmm. developed a protocol with the state agency that oversees violations in nursing homes. And they now are beginning to share information. So I can now, I can now okay. send out an investigator from my office when I get um, a report of something going wrong in a nursing home, and we can now start digging deeper into what's going on. Cool. Cool. Now I'm going to put you on the spot, Paul. I'm going to, you know, I asked earlier, I asked about the variations from state to state. I'm going to put you on the spot. Which states are the best? Which states are the worst? Well, that is a a on-the-spot question. Um, <laughs> I I think that uh, I don't want to single out any bad states, but uh, I must say, yeah, I didn't figure there, think there you are would. some states that are certainly more in the news about. For example, I'll tell you about Ohio. Ohio, mm-hmm. the Attorney General's Office uh, created a, a, a protocol about uh, a year and a half ago, where they. Uh, decided they were going to do a big uh, campaign and a reporting line and have the public uh, call them with any uh, reports of suspected elder abuse. Uh, that, that was a huge step in the right direction for the Attorney General's Office to sure. be involved in that. 
Um, th- Great. I mean, I think the state of Washington uh, and or- parts of Oregon, they're doing some good work. Of course, uh, mm-hmm. within California, uh, my own colleagues all around the state are doing some pioneering work. Um, I think there are pencil, you know, there, there's different things going on. Uh, and the only re- reason I get to hear about these things is when I get invited. For example, in your neighboring mm-hmm. state in New Hampshire, when I was there a few mm-hmm. weeks ago, yep. they, they brought together people from all walks of life and they decided that they were going to really beef up their elder coalition. And I got a tremendous sense that things are moving in the right direction there in uh, New Hampshire. One uh, resource that I would urge you and your listeners to uh, go to, it's called the, it's called the National be. Center on Elder Abuse, uh, NCEA, National Center on Elder Abuse. They are doing some phenomenal work. They are based, they're based okay. in uh, Southern California, out of uh, the University of Southern California. And uh, if you go onto their website, uh, and again, you can Google it, NCEA or National Center on Elder Abuse, there are so many links to different states as to what's happening in ah. those states too, I, I would really, mm-hmm. really um, recommend. I will include that in my show notes. Um, you know, in fact, I will, I will include things like your bio. Now, what else can my listeners, um, how can my listeners find out more about you? You're doing some good work over there and, you know, you're starting a movement. <laughs> You've already started a movement. Uh, you know, how can we well, find out more about you if that's what they want to do or other resources that they sure, can refer that, to? Um, I'll be more than happy. And even if, it's, even if it's, for example, needing help uh, in a different state, I, I've built up a database of, of key people that I could possibly direct them to. The best way to get hold of me is through my email, uh, sdcda.org. Maybe you could post that somewhere I will. I yeah, will put it in my show notes. You'll have your contact me. That's the best way to get hold of me is through email. And, um, and if I don't know the answer, I will certainly put the person in touch with somebody who I think will have the answer. Because I, what I hate doing with anyone is saying, um, oh, I don't know. But uh, I always try to yeah. make it my own responsibility to, to link the person up with somebody else who I know will take care of them. Great. Now, Paul, you are 64 Correct. years old, um, and so you are entering into this I demographic. Um, I am, you know, but, you, but you've been involved in this for way longer than that. I asked you this question before. I like my listeners to hear this answer. Why, where does this strong passion of yours for this topic come Thank from? You, well, it comes from my own parents who have been inspirational in my life. And for many years, I didn't really appreciate it. Uh, But when I was given this assignment 20 years ago, and when I started to see victims of my parents' generation being targeted, it made me reflect on my own relationship with my parents. And over the years, has allowed me to think back to my childhood and the fact that I grew mm-hmm. up in a home where my father was a wartime bomber pilot, and I thought of all those war stories that he would tell me about being rescued from the Adriatic after being shot down in his aircraft, but how so mm. modest he was about his um, now heroics. And then my mother, who mm-hmm. grew up in London, uh, literally dodging bombs as they rained down on, on wow. her um, 
and telling me stories of how she touched the raincoat of Winston Churchill. And and so all <laughs> growing up with, with that and then growing up with two uh, parents who taught me one thing. They said, Paul, we're the only parents you'll ever have, so treat us well. And that has served yes. me well over the years because I have grown up with a huge respect for their work ethic, for their uh, relationship with one another, and I'm just so grateful mm. uh, that that they were in my life. That's so good and to hear. That's that's so, so it, good to hear. It kind of that passion stems from them. And if ever you see me in doing a presentation, I always start. Well, I, I show a picture first of all of my own wife and my family, but then I show pictures of my parents, mm -hmm. and I talk a little bit mm -hmm. about my parents, and it gives my audience a context from which to work as to why I'm doing this. Because, you know, Lee, unfortunately, people mistake passion for politics. You know, yes. often ask me, <laughs> what office are you running for? And I say, I can't stand <laughs> politics. I would never be a politician. I love what I do and that's all I want to do. <laughs> okay, here goes a question for you, Paul. Um, how do you feel about getting older? You know, I'm looking forward to retirement, would you believe? I'm looking forward to, in two or three years' time, when, although retirement is a, is a misconception, it's not really retirement, it's a redirection, is what I want to call yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. You and, hit it right and, on the head. I'm looking forward to that part of my life when I can travel more with my wife. I can do things like sit down and read a whole book in, in a day when I haven't been able to do that for years where I want to take up a class, I want to learn a language, uh, I want to spend more time with my twin granddaughters in England, uh, and hopefully still have the opportunity to be there for my mother if, God bless her, she'll stay mm -hmm. with us for another two, three, four, even longer years. My, my goal, my ideal would be to be able to go around state to state. Maybe I can join you one day. And, and, and oh, I love that others to do what we're doing and, and to try to help others be safe and, and to look forward to the later years of their life. I have a passion here to empower older people. You have a passion to protect exactly. older people. I believe, I believe we can exactly. you know, do something together there that's quite intriguing to me. You know, as we get older, we face this crisis of confidence you know growing older in this culture is not the same in growing older in the cultures where elders are more respected we tend to push aside our elders we tend to they feel less useful and we that we make the mistake ourselves we are taught we make the mistake of you know thinking that growing older equals growing old it's not growing older is a biological process none of us escapes this but growing old is a mental and spiritual process that we have made an unconscious choice to do and we make that an unconscious choice because of the culture we live in we don't know any better well like you in your passion i am here to help others know that there's another choice beyond getting old so for a 64 year old man paul I'm very appreciative of your passion. That passion will keep you alive. Oh, I hope so. Thank you, Lee. Yes. <laughs> and so, um, you know, you may not be doing all the physical stuff I do, but there's no need for that crap. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm going to pull back at the moment, so I'm, I'm, I am feeling it right now. I'm going to get rid of that muscle. <laughs> but, um, you know, the connection between what you're doing and what I'm doing has intrigued me. I, will, I may sure. talk with you about that further in a few weeks Absolutely. or months or whatever have you. 
Paul, this has been a tremendously educational conversation for me. I, I'm really just getting into this topic, you know, and my listeners, I'm trying to introduce my listeners to a wide variety of topics that affect older people. And so uh, after reading your article, and I will link your article in my show notes as well, it's an excellent article that covers a wide variety of things you know, related to elder abuse. So I'm going to heavily recommend this. This is a great introduction to elder abuse. So I'm, I'm just appreciative of the work that you are doing. I'm glad you're out there. Well, thank you, Lee. It's been a joy. I mean, here we are. You and I have spent an hour uh, just on a, just uh-huh. a, a very flow, what I thought was a flowing conversation, and we've just scratched right. the surface. So please feel free to have me come back on a future podcast if we get response from audience with questions. I would love to engage love to. Uh, in this medium with you again. And that wraps it for episode five. Paul and I have only scratched the surface of this complex social issue in this discussion. Please explore the show notes where you will find much more information, including more about Paul himself, links to his educational articles, his YouTube videos, and other resources mentioned in this discussion. You can find these show notes at innergameofaging.com forward slash podcast forward slash IGA005. There is lots more information coming your way in upcoming episodes, so hit subscribe on your podcast player to make sure that you don't miss any of it. And until next time... Thanks for listening to the Inner Game of Aging podcast with Lemo Watt. Check out more content by going to theinnergameofaging.com. That's theinnergameofaging, no spaces, dot com. Stay with us as we learn the many ways of being older without growing old.